Welcome to Right Spokane Perspective with your host, Tim. And Shannon. It's opinion, fact, information, and your alert system. Stay tuned and enjoy the show. And welcome to Right Spokane Perspective on this We Need the Water this Wednesday episode. We are going to be visited again by Mary Dye. She is state representative from the 9th Legislative District here in Washington State. We're going to be talking about the Columbia River Basin Project and the long-term effects that has had and will continue to have and also maybe some of the effects that we haven't seen yet. We're going to jump into that conversation with Mary Dye after some inspiration. Our inspiration today is In the Garden. My dad loved being outdoors in God's creation, camping, fishing, and rock hunting. He also enjoyed working in his yard and garden, but it took lots of work. He spent hours pruning, hoeing, planting seeds or flowers, pulling weeds, mowing the lawn, and watering the yard and garden. The results were worth it. A landscaped lawn, tasty tomatoes, and beautiful peace roses. Every year he pruned the roses close to the ground, and every year they grew back, filling the senses with their fragrance and beauty. In Genesis, we read of the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve lived, thrived, and walked with God. There, God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. I imagine that perfect garden also included beautiful, sweet-smelling flowers, perhaps even roses minus the thorns. After Adam and Eve's rebellion against God, they were expelled from the garden and needed to plant and care for their own gardens, which meant breaking up hard ground, battling with thorns and other challenges. Yet God continued to provide for them, and he didn't leave humanity without the beauty of creation to draw us to him. The flowers in the garden remind us of God's continued love and a promise of renewed creation, symbols of hope and comfort. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the many reminders that you give us in your creation. Thank you for your beauty among the thorns. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we have a wonderful creation that we're supposed to be good stewards of, and that creation has brought us abundant resources. Everything on this planet that's man-made was resourced from this earth and so it's amazing the policies and the things that we've done that are negative but there's also some amazing things that are done that are positive like when you go over to the faucet and you want that drink of water good clean water comes out because we've come together as communities and use that resource to uh, wet your lips water your garden and also a very industrious system that has created abundant life in Washington state where there was once desert. There is oasises full of fruit and plenty. And we're going to talk about that today with Mary Dye, state representative from the ninth legislative district. Representative Mary Dye, thanks for your time this evening. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. The thing of water, it is the sustainer of life without it. Everything dies. We had a Columbia River Basin project. A lot of folks may have stopped by the rest areas or visitor centers and seen the development of the Columbia River Basin from the idea in the 1920s all the way to where we're at today. Now, that is under threat in some areas. The Snake River dams are threatening to take out, but there was promises that were also not kept in the Columbia River Basin project. So let's unfold that whole project and what it meant to Washington and to farmers and feeding the world. Well, it's a, truly a miracle project. Um, like you said, it was 
passed through Congress to look at the Columbia Basin Project back in 1922. They enacted a a starting piece of legislation to really look at the design. By 33, that's when they really started moving forward with construction. And then they built Grand Coulee Dam and and completed it in the 40s. And, you know, that whole infrastructure using that giant dam, I mean, the largest concrete structure in the world was to build a promise of not only irrigated agriculture that would irrigate what I consider one of the rare places. It's an alluvial plain between the mighty Columbia and the Snake Rivers. And those alluvial plains don't occur like the richest soil in the world, but it's like the alluvial plain between the Tigris and the Euphrates or At the Nile, it's such a valuable piece of land for prosperity and beautiful crops, and the weather is really amenable to growing things. And so the developed part of the project has produced tremendous amount of variety and wealth and prosperity in that region because it supports the economy of the state in many ways. It always kind of goes back and forth between agriculture and aerospace. So it's ag and Boeing going back and forth as to who has the best sales. And I think ag's going to beat it this year. But that basin with the apples being number one crop for the state. But we produce 60% of the global supply of McDonald's French fries in the basin. And uh, we have interest in a couple of tomatoes companies, Heinz and Hunt's. And they're looking at the basin. They've done test plots. And the basin yields better tomatoes, better yields than it does in California. And we have a sustainable water supply. So not only are we going to be growing the the French fries for McDonald's, we're going to be growing the ketchup. So it's a good deal there. And um, it's just an amazing project, but it's only half finished. It's the largest unfinished reclamation project in the United States. Well, before you go on on to what's Mm -hmm. unfinished, you know, you brought up McDonald's and of course the French fries. Uh, A lot of folks like those McDonald's French fries, but when you're looking at not, that's one, probably one of the larger customers, well-known name, but when you go to your supermarket and you see a whole plethora of grown goods, whether it's apples, potatoes, those are also oftentimes coming from the Columbia River Basin. A lot of people see our neighboring state in Idaho, the Gem State, thinking that they're the number one producer of potatoes, but actually we produce more potatoes than they do. We do, and I remember we had the opportunity of hearing J.R. Simplot speak to the wheat growers one year, and he waxed eloquent about this being the best potato growing country in the world, and I've never forgotten that. He was a man of age, but he was so enthusiastic still, just alive with energy and excitement for agriculture in the central basin of Washington State. Well, and also, there's it's not just the food aspect there's also a lot of other products. I mean, it's food for us. It's also food for livestock, but there are also a plethora of products that are grown in those fields that are irrigated. Well, there is. And when you look at, you mentioned the grocery, there's all kinds of bell peppers, asparagus, you know, there's so many different crops as you go through the fresh packed potatoes, as well as the fresh frozen, you know, all the different frozen potato products. But there's just so many crops. I think there's like 60 different crops that are grown in the basin. Yeah, and out of those crops, you also get many things like, you know, plant-based 
materials that are in all sorts of different kinds of products. So, you know, you got your human food, you got your dog food, you got your uh, livestock food, but there's also uh, many other products and fuels and things that are are brought out as byproducts of creating all of that food. Absolutely. And, you know, we have, I was the field man starting the with the company that started introducing canola into the into the region, and we now have a crushing facility in Warden, Washington. It took a couple, three decades to get there, but that facility produces, domestically produced, high-value canola oil, and then the mash that comes out of the mill goes to feed cattle. So instead of sending the the whole seed to Japan to be crushed and then have the mash um, shipped back to the United States for cattle feed. We're keeping that value added product right here. There's nothing that goes to waste, obviously, you know, in an agricultural system. But not only that, these high value crops create an economy. And as you drive across the state, there's something that I would like you to kind of be aware of. And I saw this on a satellite picture. I saw another satellite picture today, but the Grand Coulee Dam was built to produce the energy necessary to run the irrigation systems. And that third powerhouse was designed specifically for that. But it also ran the industries industries that were necessary to fight World War II and win it. Because basically, we had the boat building and airplane building, and we were able to build enough of a war machine that they that we could build it faster than they could shoot it down. And that's how we won World War II. Grand Coulee Dam was essential for that. And some of the great companies were essential for that, like Kaiser Aluminum that turned into Kaiser Permanente as well. So we have health insurance. And then, of course, Boeing has been an iconic industry for our state and continues to produce great airplanes. So that energy is so important. So when you come across the basin and you see the um, irrigated ag and you go through Moses Lake and you see the growth that's happening there, it's amazing how much more is happening in Moses Lake as we continue to develop the project. You cross a canal and it's called the East Low Canal and you're on I-90 and you're heading east. And if you're driving through that in the evening or at night and you look north and south as you cross Highway 17, you see all these lights. And it shows you how much of an economy is there. There's processing, there's jobs, there's there's um, dairies, there's cattle feeders, and then there's all of the different crops, but they all have ancillary industries, you know, that you see, and it, it's growing the economy and it supports the economy. When you cross that low canal, we haven't been able to deliver water east of the low canal. And so you look across north and south and when you're driving through shrag and through you know and you look and you see before you get to ritzville now shrag's that rest area you kind of go you you mm -hmm. go through ritzville and then there's a there's kind of a high point between ritzville and moses lake and that's going to be the shrag rest area that you can stop and pull over and see where you know, if you stop on the right-hand side, you're going to see a different view than on the left-hand side. But you do see those irrigated, very, I think that they're so efficient is why so many agricultural industries use them. But those, uh, what do you call those? Circle. The circle, uh, you know, it's like you, you water your yard. Mm-hmm, they're pivot, oh, rainbirds, like, yeah, but they don't even use those. It's um, pivot irrigation. Pivot and irrigation, they're highly, that's right. Yeah, they're highly efficient. But when you look out, north and south and you're looking at dry land agriculture you don't see 
a lot of ancillary businesses that have grown up around. It's not supporting a big economy. And so you see dark night out right. in the eastern half of the state where it's dry land ag. And and, and so when you're you're looking, are you talking about you're, are you talking about like off, down in Othello and those areas? It's more dry land. Yeah. It, well, even you know east of Othello, when you get to Washtagna, going between Washtagna and Ritzville, you look across that. If you drive Highway 26 and it goes to the dry land, you look at all those fields and they still lay really beautiful and they're still in the irrigation project, but they haven't been finished and they're really dry. Um, dry. They grow fairly good wheat because the growers out there are very efficient, but it's not like the economy of an irrigated ag system. And so we're leaving a lot of economic possibilities and potential. We're just leaving it on the table and we've been doing so for 50 years. That's because the project didn't receive the attention anymore from from Congress. They halted the expansion of the Columbia River Basin project that was originally designed. Is that correct? They did. In 1968, it stopped. It was in the middle of the um, Vietnam War, and we'd lost the political will to build big things. We we're kind of entrenched in. But of course, you know, it was in the middle of the space race. So we had, you know, man landing on the moon and we were doing big things, but we had stopped this project and it was promised that they would come back. So they allowed a lot of the producers on the east side of that canal to dil- drill these deep wells. And the deep wells are very, very deep now. There are some of them 1,200, 1,500, nearing on 2,000 feet deep. And the water in the aquifer has been drained in the ensuing 50 years. That was supposed to be a temporary solution until we returned and finished the development of the project. Well, it sounds like we and, need to return to the, the idea of this project because we do have uh, a growing economy. The state is growing in its spending, and we've got to support that with industry other than just taxes. We need growth, not uh, more taxes. So we'll, we'll talk about that. We're going to take a break. We'll be right back again with Representative Mary Dye out of the 9th Legislative District here in Washington State. Don't go anywhere. And welcome back to Right Spokane Perspective on We Need the Water this Wednesday episode. I know we talked a lot about the Columbia River Basin project in the in the first half of the show and how the project has not been finished. There was other lands that were supposed to be irrigated and Representative Mary Dye brought up that the wells have been drilled deeper and deeper in reaching that aquifer for water. And we need to finish that project, but we also have to understand the uh, the immensity of that project and the politics behind it because there are, we talked about in the last time Mary Dye was on the show, judges making issues with, you know, spillage and putting water out to sea. And we need Congress to step in to make sure we can utilize that water. Then it can run through the aquifer and then out to sea. So, let, let's continue talking about the, the continuation of this project. It stopped in 1968, and we haven't done much since, so why? Well, you know, it was hard to get. Once you stop a big project like that, it's hard to get the political will to, to complete it. And we have, fortunately, um, because of the urgency of the threat to the aquifer and the amount of development that's occurred already in the region, We have cities at risk of losing their municipal water supply. So we have worked together, formed 
several coalitions, but the Coalition for Sustainable Water, for the Columbia Basin Coalition for Sustainable Water, um, those those folks have come together and the, the cities and the farmers are working together for a solution. That's one group. We have other groups that are working really well together. We have a very large partnership that's formed and we've been able to move the needle and we are now constructing um, replacement pipelines to replace the deep well irrigation and get the producers on a more sustainable water supply. And it gives us the opportunity to use the 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 project to restore some of the aquifers, use some of the water for wildlife habitat, and you know, we can surface recharge some of the aquifers, but we can also establish a more sustainable surface water delivery to the producers. And we have amazingly, uh, with a combination of state funding and the federal government come in, we have built one pipeline and we are going to be breaking ground on three more this year. And we're working towards getting the largest of the pipelines constructed, hopefully with, you know, we will have the funding coming forward this year for that pipeline. So pipelines and these uh, connections to water and, and municipal water supplies. I know that we had talked before about the Snake River dams where they were, you know, obviously they take the dams out. You're going to have municipal water supplies that suffer as long as well as the egg industry. Is there kind of a, a connection there with some of these public policies when we're looking at the Columbia River Basin where recharging some of these aquifers and, and a lot of the policy around these things, if government can get out of the way to some extent uh, at the at the federal level and state level and let the municipal water supplies and the, and the operations of these dams, they're going to be more effective in solving these issues? Is that kind of where we're, we're sitting? Because it, it seems like that's what we've bumped into into the past as larger, you know, overarching powers have changed the way decision-making has been occurring with these projects. Well, you know, it, I think that it's kind of two different things that could potentially collide. I hope they don't. But the two different things are that there has been a long activist interest in removing the lower Snake River dams for for fish habitat. But the reality is, is that there's no guarantee that that actually will work and that it's a multifaceted, very complex ecosystem around uh, salmon that live in spawn in freshwater, travel to saltwater and then move back to freshwater. I mean, they're not a straightforward, you know, simple solution on that. And, you know, it's just that it's that the activists just kind of locked down that this is the only answer. And over the ensuing 30 some odd years that we've been fighting to preserve that irreplaceable resource, that infrastructure that's absolutely irreplaceable. They just locked down that they had to get them out and they had to have a win. And and so we just there's something about this this idea that we can amass an activist movement and and keep it persistent for decade after decade. And it matters not the value of what they're trying to take down. And there's nothing that we can do to stop them. And it so to me that's one issue. Meanwhile, on the other issue, we're out here. Um, doing good things to grow grow opportunities for families and communities so that they can do good things for the nation. 
and to protect our national security by providing a uh, building a very sustainable agricultural system in the central basin as was promised back in 1922 well and i think that and, that's a, a crucial thing when we talk about you know being uh, prepared for emergency for global turmoil things like that having these water systems this delivery of water for agriculture, but also uh, water for municipal water supplies. I I think about those wells that you were talking about where they had drilled them in concert with the Columbia River Basin Project so that they were delivering water to these sites before there was irrigation from the Basin Project. And then it didn't happen. And then obviously the wells get larger and larger, deeper and deeper. And I think about that with municipal water supplies. If we start reducing the amount of usable water in these regions, whether it's the Snake or or Columbia, those municipal water supplies are really going to be damaged. And then you look at what they're trying to do on the Snake River, that makes it even more important for the Columbia River Basin Project to expand because we're going to need those agricultural assets. Right. And the, and the thing about the nexus between the Snake River and the Columbia River is that the Snake River provides the shipping and transportation corridor for a good portion of the U.S. wheat production. This is a major shipping corridor. It's the deep, the furthest inland seaport on the West Coast. And it's a busy seaport. And people don't really recognize how much of the things that go through that seaport and how important it is to the economy of the United States. Well, into Tri-Cities, you got the Port of Pasco there, right? Right. And of course, that again, a very productive port. Well, and, and doesn't that port you know, also carry the wheat that's grown from the Columbia River Basin farmers? Not just the wheat, but all the other products that we're shipping out to the world, whether it's in commerce or whether it's in sometimes aid, all sorts of different uh, products that are shipped in those shipping lanes. Right. And, and well, the canals aren't shipping canals, but the, the, river, the river, the Snake River and the Columbia Lower Columbia River are. And those are, that's like RI-5. That's where all of the commerce goes back and forth. They bring up all of the, the fuels and the fertilizers necessary to do the agricultural production. And they provide... They, we send all of the pulpwood down to the paper industry where, I mean, this is a very busy seaport and it's part and parcel of the abundant economy that we have in the eastern half of the state. And, you know, it's as though that doesn't seem to register that, you know, we, we are 33, almost $34 trillion in debt. As a nation, and yeah. We, one of the ways that you remedy that or backstop that debt, obviously, it's kind of gone to the tipping point, but you have to export agricultural and products in order to offset that debt. That's your collateral on that debt. And the only way and you can do that robust, is having water yeah. and power to do so. Correct. Well, and the shipping lanes. And, and the shipping lanes. And without the shipping lanes. And the other piece of it is we have a very robust tourism industry now that has evolved on the river with the uh, cruise boats. And that provides a huge amount of the economy to Lewiston, Clarkston Valley. So that's important to both states. Right. It's very important. Why you wouldn't want to just make sure that those things stay healthy and doing well. It doesn't make sense to me that you would want to tear that apart. It doesn't, I mean, well, it, especially it lifts, when lifts everybody up. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, what do they say? Rising tides uh, float all boats, right? And I think that that's the thing with the water on our river, having that sustainable water supply uh, raises uh, not just the tourist boats, but also uh, people that are recreationally boating and the boats that ship food around the world that's grown here in Washington. And so there's a pipeline that was put together last year from the Columbia River Basin Project, and you guys are, are looking to expand three more pipelines this year. Is that something that the state level and the federal level is working on uh, aside yeah. from uh, just because I look at the state budget. So 2003, we were $24 billion, I think. Fast forward 20 years to 2023, $70 billion state budget. And a big piece of that is the Columbia River Basin and revenue from agriculture. You know, I don't know exactly the the breakout of the revenue, you know, well, I just know if Moses can... Lake wasn't there, there wouldn't be a lot of tax revenue because Moses Lake and a lot of these regions that have uh, so many businesses and manufacturing and processing and things like that, if the the waters go away, so do those revenues. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, having agricultural economies are interesting. Agricultural communities are interesting because they provides stability and continuity across generations. And so you have these stable communities with families that have a different perspective and a different work ethic. And I think that they are an important aspect of a stable and healthy and robust society. And when you start tearing at those threads, you're threatening the underpinnings that hold your society together. And, and that's the I society just, that pays all the bills at the end of the day, whether it's the, the state government, municipal governments, or the the bills of a small business and, and uh, the bills of working families. Well, it, it we do contribute a good amount. And I think that having a, a society that has access to healthy and affordable food is important. And the way that the agricultural system has worked, 98% of the agriculture is still in family farms. They say it's all corporate, but the reality is that that was a function of tax changes in the Reagan administration. So families incorporated and then to unincorporated is unincorporate is difficult, but there's still the families that are running those farms. Yeah, families running the farms and also all the, like you said, the supporting industries, whether, and some of those supporting industries also branch out. And so they they make farm equipment, but they also make other equipment, whether it's in the healthcare industry or construction. And so those companies can then expand and also help the other industries that also bolster local and uh, larger economies. Well, yeah, that's kind of it. We are the part of the base of the economy and that is an important aspect of a healthy society. The other things that happen because agriculture is growing is great. And we've seen agriculture becoming really huge opportunities. I, I mean, I look at the potato farmers and the the investment and the capital to become a potato farmer is really significant. And these are bold, individual, brave, entrepreneurial people that are willing to take risks and and do it with skill these are the kinds of people that reflect the best in American entrepreneurship and and risk taking and they're they're building they manage this land beautifully and they have a lot invested into it 
Yeah. And um, you just have to appreciate what they're doing. And what I would like to see us be able to do is move forward and have more opportunities in the basin so young, ambitious people can have those opportunities to grow their operations as well. And I mentioned it to our FFA kids and I said, you know, look north and south on Highway 26 as you're going to Washtagna. And can you imagine that all being irrigated? Wouldn't you love to farm that? And they, their eyes just light up because they know, you know, they're working with their dads, they're doing stuff, but well, they see the, they know the difference. The opportunity. Yeah. And I know that our generation is like, you know, oh, it'd be a huge risk. It's, we're tired, blah, blah, blah. But it's really, we're building this for our kids and our grandkids, just like our ancestors built it for us, right? Well, we heard those and, alarmists saying that we were going to run out of food, I think, you know, back in the 90s or something like that. But because of farmers like in central Washington and irrigation, that hasn't been the case. In fact, food is more abundant now on the globe than it has ever been. And I see those commodity trailers leaving those potato farmers fields. And if you, like you said, the, the dry farmers, they take huge risks and it's a lot less risk for those farmers if there was irrigated piping coming to their farms, which again, they pay for, I hear from farmers that they do pay fees to cover the costs of that infrastructure to bring water to their farms because that water is so beneficial in creating abundant crops for all of us to enjoy when we go to the grocery store. And if you traveled halfway around the world, odds are you're probably still going to find Washington potatoes and apples. Out of time for today's show, but I want to thank you, Mary Dye, for your time. And I know that you've got to hit that legislative uh, meeting schedule that's uh, in front of you. And so maybe we can have you back here soon and talk about legislative items that you see that our listeners may need to be aware of. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. All that being said, folks, we'll be with you again tomorrow.